Robert Ballard, some of you may recognize his name. Robert Ballard is one of our great modern explorers, best known for discovering or finding the Titanic, but that is by no means his greatest discovery. No, in 1973, 1974, he and his team became the first humans to study the ocean's Great Rift Valley, the largest mountain range on Earth, but it's, it's underwater, a deep water mountain range covering about 23% of the Earth. When they went down there, they had no idea what they were going to discover. Now, it's important that we know that the Great Rift Valley has no connection to the sun. And I'm not talking about Jesus. I'm talking about that star that keeps us all warm during the day. It was pitch black down there. There's no connection to the sun, which means as far as they understood it, the conditions for life there were non-existent. So they thought. What they found when they went down into the Great Rift Valley was that it was teeming with species. Some species that exist on the surface but were much smaller on the surface than they are down there, like, like tube worms that are usually about the size of our hands, but down in the Great Rift Valley are about eight feet long. And there were many other species that hadn't been discovered yet, and that wasn't all. In trying to understand how this mountain range was formed, they discovered tens of thousands of volcanic geysers underwater that they now call deep sea vents. And Ballard says upon discovering this, his pilot immediately made a keen observation. That's hot. In fact, the water got up to about 650 degrees Fahrenheit, far beyond the boiling point, but it wasn't boiling. Somehow, the water around it kept it from boiling. Life should not have been able to exist there. Not in that heat. Not without light. Not without photosynthesis. But what they found there was this bacteria. And the bacteria was attaching itself to the worms and the crabs and the other things that were growing. And the bacteria have figured out a way to recreate and replicate the process of photosynthesis in the dark. We now call this process chemosynthesis. At the time, much of this could not be found in any textbook. The life and ecosystems being discovered and the principles that enabled all of this to exist didn't seem possible because its existence didn't fit with anyone's current view of reality or truth. But of course, the absence of things from our textbooks didn't mean they didn't exist. It simply meant they weren't part of reality as we have discovered it yet. Ballard's discoveries didn't change truth. They simply revealed truth in a way that reshaped the larger scientific world's understanding of truth and reality. This happens in other ways as well. In fact, this is the kind of revelatory process we see at work in the life and teachings of Jesus. Jesus said he spoke in parables, which is what we've been studying throughout this Lenten season, so that he can disclose or reveal things that had previously been hidden to those who now had the ears to hear it and the eyes to see it. 
And this purpose is embedded in all of the parables, but is explicitly mentioned here in this one. The kingdom of heaven is like, as we heard, a treasure hidden in a field. Now, Kryptine is not the planet Superman came from, that's Krypton. Kryptine is the Greek word for hide, and we find it about four times in this parable. It's where we get the word crypt, a hidden underground chamber, or cryptic, something that is intentionally hidden, or cryptography, the encoding or decoding of secret messages, so that Jesus is our ultimate cryptographer, decoding the hidden reign of God, and even more importantly, the hidden nature and ways of God. Jesus says that when you see and hear what he's trying to reveal to you, it will be like a treasure hidden in a field. That if you found it, you would give everything that you have, everything that you own, everything in your possession so that you could get your hands on it, so that you could get your life into that field and so that you could get the life of that field into you. Jesus says it's a treasure that's not only worth more than anything you possess, but it is a treasure that is worth more than the summation of everything you possess all put together. If you could see it, he's saying, if you could behold it, really see it and behold it, you would give everything you have away to be able to hold on to it. Jesus said the kingdom of heaven is this kind of treasure. And those listening to him certainly needed to hear this because we know from previous study that these people had been waiting for the kingdom to be revealed for quite some time. And we also know that they had different understandings about what it was and how it would be revealed. That They believed that it was going to come to them through military might, through force through coercion and control. They believed what was going to happen was going to happen quickly. And then when it happened, it was going to be bloody. This is what they believed. But what God was revealing to them was that God's intention was never to destroy their enemies. But instead, God's intention was always to save them. Subtly, Slowly, one heart, one mind, one soul, one person at a time. This is the nature of God's kingdom. And it is because this is the nature of God. And I think this really gets us to the heart of the matter here. God's kingdom is a treasure. And God's invitation to God's kingdom is gospel. But even more importantly, the kingdom and the gospel are, are what they are because they flow from the heart and the character of God. Which is what and is what Jesus is trying to reveal to us. In other words, the treasure, the treasure is Jesus himself. Revealing to us the very nature, person, and character of God. And this is what we believe. And this, this Jesus is the incarnation of God, the ultimate revelation of God. That If you want to know what God is like, you look at Jesus. If you want to know the kinds of things God does, you look at Jesus. If you want to know how God thinks, you look and reflect upon Jesus. For all those who believe, and maybe some of you remember this movie, that the gods must be crazy. 
For all those who believe that the gods must be angry. For all those who believe that God is some old, consternated, constipated white guy with a long white beard sitting on some existential throne waiting to thump everyone who even slightly irritates him. For all those who want to believe that God is primarily self-centered and self-serving. For all those who identify God as a rigid tactician, for all those whose relationship with the Almighty is defined first by fear, by guilt, or by shame, we have Jesus. Who, as Paul said, being in very nature God, did not consider his Godness something to be held on to too tightly, but instead took on the very nature of a servant, humbling himself, becoming obedient to death, even death on the cross. German theologian Jürgen Moltmann has said that we see God most clearly, not only when we look at Jesus, but even more so when we look at Jesus on the cross. So perhaps we ought to consider what is being revealed to us about God when we see Jesus on the cross. So here it goes. Here's a few ideas. On the cross, we see someone who is concerned about the welfare of others more than the welfare of himself. Even as he's bleeding out, he tells Mary and John to take care of each other. On the cross, we see someone who was so full of mercy that he's able to look into the eyes of his killers and advocate for their forgiveness. On the cross, we see someone who is not committed to keeping his distance from us in hard or difficult times, but instead is willing to enter into our greatest pain, our greatest suffering, and to experience our deepest darkness in order to help us make our way through it. On the cross, we see someone who is, in his very essence, love. Not retribution, not rigidity, not intolerance, but love. God is love, John says, and whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. This was the great revelation. That if we learn to see it, if we learn to fully embrace it, to fully embrace Christ, it could slowly but surely heal us from the inside out, meeting us in our place of deepest longing. And so I wonder today, what is your deepest longing? If you were to examine your own heart and soul really closely and honestly, what is your deepest longing? Surely it is more than stature or stuff. I mean, beneath all of it, what are you longing for most in your inmost being? If you could find it, if you could apprehend it, if you could embrace it, what would you give everything you have away in order to keep it? What would it be? Acceptance? Belonging? Security of some kind or another? Understanding people would get you? Authentic love, forgiveness, sacrifice, significance, purpose, healing, transformation, some form of peace. What is it for you? What is the cry of your soul? What are you longing for? 
And what kinds of things would you be willing to do in your life right now to apprehend those things? What do you think you'd be willing to do? Fred Craddock was a great preacher who liked to say that all stories are true and some of them actually happened. And with that in mind, he told this story that he swears was true. He was visiting the home of one of his former students after graduation, and after a great dinner, the parents uh, excused themselves and hustled the kids off to bed, leaving Fred alone in the living room with the family pet, a large, sleek, old greyhound dog. Earlier in the evening, Fred had watched the kids roll around on the floor, playing with the family dog. That's a full-blooded greyhound there, the father of the kids had told him. He once raced professionally down in Florida. Then we got him. Great dog, the greyhound. Kids love him. Well, then later sitting there with the dog, the dog turned to Fred and said, This your first visit to Connecticut? <laughs> no, Fred answered. I went to school up here a long time ago. Well, I guess you heard I came up here from Miami, said the greyhound. Oh, yeah? You, re you retired, Fred said. Is that what they told you? No. No, I did not retire. I tell you, I spent ten, ten years as a professional racing greyhound. That means I spent ten years running around that track day after day, seven days a week with other dogs chasing that rabbit. Well, one day I got up close to the rabbit and I realized when I got a good look at it, that it was a fake. I'd spent my whole life chasing a fake rabbit. Hey friend, I didn't, I didn't retire. I quit. <laughs> See, the real truth is, some of us here this morning need to stop chasing the fake rabbit. Whatever that is for you, we need to, like that greyhound, quit. So that the treasure of God's love, revealed and offered to us in Christ, can bring us into the true reality that we've been really chasing after all along. And if we can do that, if we can do that, then perhaps we might also begin to uncover other treasures as well. The ones that are hidden in the fields of each one of your lives. The fields that Christ gave everything to buy. You catch that? The fields of your life cost Christ everything. Everything. He purchased them, though, because he knew then what he knows now. That there are within each and every single one of you hidden treasures. Some you've yet to discover. God placed them there. And God is waiting for you to work with Christ to slowly unearth them so that everyone else you know can fully see what God already sees. That you are a great treasure, deeply loved, 
by our God, who is, in God's very essence, love. Thanks be to God.